Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 325.DA0202, certificate number 44269, John D. The alignment of the planets is most unusual this year. Mars is due to take the ascendant three days after the anniversary of your majesty's birth, and also on that day there is a full moon. What does it mean? It means the rise of a great empire, Majesty, and the fall of another. Which empire is to rise and which is to fall? That I cannot say, Majesty. Astrology is, as yet, more an art than a science. Not John D. Rockefeller. John D., not, not the condition where you get yellow skin. John D., us. <laughs> do, you, do you call that John D.? <laughs> Not John D. McDonald, the mystery writer, or John D. States, the inventor of the modern three-point seatbelt. Oh. Just John D. D-E-E, not D, D period. No, it's from the Welsh. Uh, Here we have, go with the Welsh again. It, I'm so impressed. It would have been like do meaning dark. Do you, do you like a lot of Welsh omnibus? You know, I'm Welsh. You are extremely My father's Welsh. family was Welsh. Let's, let's put it that way. And I'm also somewhat Welsh. We're probably making the omnibus disproportionately Welsh. Well, like the Welsh do, we like to sing and tell stories of our our vainglorious people. I like to put a leak on my forehead on St. David's Day. Look you. You know, we uh, the the Welsh are uh, the Welsh in America are disproportionately Mormon. Yes, you've said that before. Mormon yeah. missionaries had great success in impoverished Wales they during did. the 19th century. They said, got, "Hey, coal miners, how would you like 40 acres and a mule?" Get out of your sooty coal mines. You four foot nine Welshmen, come eat our, our, uh, our, our macaroni and cheese. Come to the Great Salt Lake. They, have fa- they had found someplace on earth worse than the Wasatch Front of Utah, <laughs> Wales, and they were able to trick people into coming over. Uh, John D. was, n- although his family was Welsh, he was born in London in 1527. His father was a minor courtier of uh, Henry VII. The War Not of the a Roses. minor no. But a minor. Most Welsh people at that time would have been minors. Yes. He was a minor courtier. Yes. In the court of Henry VII, the War of the Roses having ended and the Tudors having a consolidated power. Have you ever heard of John Dee? Just no. out of curiosity? No, I never have. 
he's a, he's a fascinating figure and one of the greatest geniuses, maybe the greatest genius of the 16th century. What? And yet we never talk about it because of his unusual life. And it's very hard to understand which parts of his life are actually biographical because of now the broad set of pseudo history that has risen up around this guy. Seems like also he had a lot of competition for greatest genius of the 16th century. That was an era where we remember a few geniuses. We do. And like many of these Renaissance men, he was an expert in about everything. John Dee went to Cambridge and then Oxford where he was just a tireless scholar of everything. This was not a time when you would make a distinction between science and non-sciences. What right. we would think of today as magical pseudosciences like alchemy, alchemy or numerology. And so as a result, he studies numbers, but you know he's learning higher math, but he's also convinced that there's a mystical power sure. to these numbers that undergird the universe. The rule of threes. He's, Three is a magic number, by the way. That's, that's what Schoolhouse <laughs> Rock tells us. <laughs> Uh, I've learned my lesson. Yes, you have. To say the magic words, schoolhouse <laughs> rock, and shut off any further avenues of complaint. Uh, I'm afraid that by mentioning schoolhouse rock, it will just make you think and talk about schoolhouse rock more, though. It has a yeah. totemic power for you. Well, would you like to talk about the base 12 <laughs> numerical system? Because I'm wanna, ready to do it. I'm not clear on how a bill becomes a law. Can you walk me through that? Well, I can. <laughs> in the, with, a, with a song in the first person? You know, he's studying astronomy, but he also feels like he's studying the, the spheres of the cosmos. Yeah, the music of the spheres. Seeing the hand of God in the music of the spheres, exactly. But all fields, you know, from geography to the natural sciences, you know, botany, biology, he's architecture. He's an expert in everything. This is a guy who can sleep four hours a night because of his lively mind. Hmm, would that I could. I know. Wouldn't that be great? I used to only sleep four hours a night, but it wasn't because of the liveliness of my mind. Was it because of the liveliness of speed? <laughs> <laughs> I, that was because of the liveliness of my loins. <laughs> I'm a guy who like will get seven hours and 38 minutes of sleep and be like, boy, that extra 22 minutes really would have done me for it today. It escaped me. Again. Where is that Diet Dr. Pepper? Like, I don't understand these kind of high achieving Bill Clinton types who are like, I, I sleep 11 minutes a night. Well, you know, it may Me be. And Hill. Why, why does he talk like Bill Clinton? <laughs> no, it is Bill, like Bill oh. Clinton. Bill Clinton is one of these guys who famously can like just, you know, only, only needs a few hours of sleep a night because, and then he's awake and refreshed and ready for new challenges. Can you imagine? I just, I feel like they're all making it up to make us feel bad. Like, don't try to become great. We have this, some natural biophysical gift that you cannot even attempt. So don't worry about it. We'll run the world. Well, the, it is a pharmaceutical uh, tease that there will be super drugs in the future that allow us to, that aren't just like Bolivian marching powder or, <laughs> or uh, you know. Spanish flight? <laughs> but are actual like, you know, drugs that enhance our, our metabolisms in such a way that we, we won't need as much sleep. We'll all be out using our Mac paint to draw the new, the new uh, masterpieces. You'd think it would happen. As we discussed in the second sleep entry, it's not clear it's all what our brain is doing during a third of our downtime. And it really would be much better evolutionarily if we could just get past this idea. I mean, uh, you know, you, you see those, uh, those instances where someone who is affected by uh, brain injury or disability, where they suddenly have these, these powers that you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe possible. I watched a documentary about a guy that looked out 
he was taken on a helicopter ride. Harrison over. Ford? That's not a documentary. No. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, he was taken on a helicopter ride across London and then was able to draw London to such detail that he got the number of windows in the buildings right. What? And it was just from like flying over London one time. That's how he got his powers. Just he was taken in a helicopter it, over it, London it, and he got cosmic rays like radiation. the Fantastic Four. That's right. No, it was the it was the <laughs> smog. The rhythmic sound of the helicopter blades activated something in him. Uh, there are people online who are like, have you seen these people online talking about I can't remember what it's called, Dymaxion Sleep or the Hercules Project or something, where you you take these short bursts of micro naps where you just go immediately oh, into REM sleep. Yeah. So you're sleeping a total of four hours, but you have to do it in like eight 45 minutes or six 45 minute chunks or something. I've read so many books about sleep recently in order to try and figure out how to sleep. Oh, I thought you were just trying to nod off. Uh, well, and the thing is there, it feels like their number one premise is that they're there to debunk every other theory of sleep. Like they all start off with, uh, with the first chapter. Let me tell you why Rogers book sucks. (laughs) Here are some theories of sleep that I refute. Uh, they should just make the books really boring. Wouldn't that solve all the problems? If every book about sleep was incredibly boring, you would just nod right off. That's why I, I read books about the 30 years war. That's why my wife listens to Omnibus. No, that's not true. Oof. Although if somebody, I had a bell, I would have given you one I for that. I did see someone online. I did read some review of Omnibus online. I have no idea where I saw this. Maybe yeah. it was an iTunes review. My personal Omnibus with Ken Jennings and John Roderick. At least they put my name first. My personal <laughs> favorite to fall asleep to. And that is not a criticism. It's wow. not? Does, sounds a little <laughs> bit like one. What would possibly be the upside of telling someone? I'm beginning to wonder whether or not the, the shows we do where you introduce the topic and I am the interlocutor are the ones where we digress the most because, because it's my fault or whether <laughs> there's some other thing at, at work. It's just because I'm so bored with my own topic. Like I've just <laughs> read all about John D. That's the last thing I want to talk about. Let's talk about Dymaxion sleep and bad iTunes reviews. Uh, okay, fine. John D. Uh, at Cambridge, he is clearly straddling what we would think. John of this. D. At Cambridge.com. <laughs> Cambridge.edu. He's clearly straddling the line between science and magic that, that we are not even aware of because to them, it's the same sure. thing as a, as an example, uh, during a, uh, school performance of an Aristophanes comedy called Pax. There's a point where a giant dung beetle is supposed to appear and fly up to Jupiter's palace. This really makes me want to read Pax. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it's really apparently got a great action set piece in the middle. Yeah, well, there, there are a lot of Aristophanes' plays that we only have in portion. So maybe maybe two got grafted together. This is just one a one-sentence <laughs> ripped piece of paper that says, a giant dung beetle flies up to <laughs> Jupiter's palace. Anyway, John D. And, uh, devises a giant robotic scarab beetle to do the flying. And it's so convincing that in the 16th century, many in the audience are convinced that he has used supernatural right, aids, you know. Right. So, so he's already kind of a suspicious figure because well, he's so he, far ahead of his time. He's suspicious primarily because he's working in the theater. <laughs> Let me explain a few things you've done wrong. And as a set designer, yeah. First of all, you're a you're a techie. <laughs> you're not just in the drama club. You're like in the AV club. Was he wearing black Carhartts? <laughs> well, I mean, to his credit, he did apparently make a giant ten foot dung beetle that made people think it was real. That, that's the guy that should be working tech, right? I do, I do give him credit for that. You want him to be your roadie, right? I do. Like, can you imagine Spinal Tap coming out? And <laughs> no then... one knows who they were. <laughs> Why is the Doug Beetle eight feet? We said eight inches. 
uh, and apparently he looks the part. He's very much a Gandalf figure. He's a good-looking guy with a long white beard. A Merlin, we would have called him. Exactly Merlin in many ways. And later, as we'll see, he really embraces kind of the Arthurian destiny of his role. It's believed that Shakespeare bases Prospero, oh, really? the sorcerer character shipwrecked in the Tempest, or exiled in the Tempest, on John Dee, uh, a pop, you know, a well-known figure in the Elizabethan court. He's like the guy in the Oak Ridge Boys that let his beard grow long. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Is that what you think of when you look at the Oak Ridge Boys? You're like, that's like, that, He's like that's John Gandalf. D. Yeah. That guy can get us into Moria. He's Prospero. Do you speak Elvish? Uh, he uh, tours Europe as one of the leading scholars of his time. You know, he lectures on Euclidean geometry to the University of Paris. And later, when Euclid is first translated in English, he writes the preface to this book. And it's such a stirring defense of math that it overshadows Euclid. Like everybody's reading Euclid to read John Dee's amazing preface. Awesome. And, and in English, not in Latin. Yes, this is the first time it's been translated into English. And apparently he's really, uh, what he's doing is he's defending math or maths, they would have said probably, right. in well, an I age when still. it's very suspect because uh, it seems kind of occult and numerological to to. to be to tempt numbers. It's a science where you can't see the thing. Right. And this scares religious right-thinking people. You're looking over God's shoulder. Exactly. Like numbers, those are kind of... Careful. Huh? Look out. Well, the Jews were way ahead there, though. I mean, they were they were, uh, they were were practicing. I mean, the Kabbalah is, is numerological. It will shock you to hear that the people criticizing John Dee on this point also probably would have been very skeptical about Judaism. <laughs> 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 and any Jews that happen to be in England somehow at this point. Uh, so he so he writes very convincingly, hey, like, do you like your pump to work? Did you know that, like, hydraulics never would have been figured out if we didn't have math? Oh. Did, do you like to know how big your field is? Because guess what geometry is? So he's doing Schoolhouse Rock. Nice. Basically, for a lot of dumbass uh, uh, English courtiers at the time. Do you want to know how a bill becomes a law? <laughs> math. Um, is that true? <laughs> it's true. You got to get to one half of five twenty eight plus one or whatever. That's not right. It would be four twenty eight. Dude, four twenty plus eight. You said four twenty. <laughs> it's your turtle voice. Uh, and he, uh, you know, on this basis of this scholarly reputation, he becomes uh, uh, the magus, the wise man, the the head scholar. Uh, uh, scientific and astrological advisor in the Tudor court, eventually one of Queen Elizabeth's leading courtiers. Well, uh, my kingdom for one of those now. Exactly. Right? Why do... Uh, Why is Roger Stone our <laughs> magus? <laughs> Why do we not have that as an, as an official role in government? We have Ben Carson. But I mean, every governor should have a magus too. Yes, uh, and they should have to have a long white beard. And follow them around and say, hmm, and cast stones and... Uh, <laughs> Let me, uh, when the governor is like, we're going to make, you know, we're going to name this freeway off-ramp after former Lieutenant Governor Wilson. He's going to be like, let me scry into the crystals. <laughs> Let me get my divining rod I need out to consult with the ghost of ex-Lieutenant Governor Wilson and see if he likes <laughs> this off-ramp. <laughs> uh he tries to donate, you know, he, he amasses, a, he suggests to the Tudor crown that you know, England should have a large national library. And Agreed. they're like, and you agree. I agree. Uh, the, the Elizabeth does not. Oh. And so he amasses a personal library, the largest in England at the time, almost 2,700 volumes. What's her beef with a, with a public library? I don't know, funds, I oh, guess, yeah. funding. Yeah, where's the money going to come from? That's what everybody always says, John. Sure, sure, sure. Where's the money going to come from? Uh, he, uh, you know, 2,700 volumes, 
it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I bet my parents' house has 27 old, like, <laughs> 70s Larry Niven science fiction novels in it. How big was Thomas Jefferson's library? At the time... Probably pretty small <laughs> in 1600. Considering that his grandfather was still alive. No, at the time, Oxford's library was about one-seventh that size. Oh, wow. So okay. it was, you know, an order of magnitude bigger than the libraries at Oxford and Cambridge. So uh, many of these books had to be in the vernacular. They weren't all Latin tomes. They weren't all Greek. But uh, but there were he was collecting books. I guess a little of both. You know, yeah. the idea was he would have all the knowledge of the age. Because this yes. is a time when you could do that. Google not being an option and the knowledge of the age being confined enough that one person could be, can consider themselves conversant in everything or even a magus of everything. You know, we talk about the Library of Alexandria being this uh, this lost treasure trove of all human knowledge. But when you really think of it, how much was there written down, <laughs> right? Maybe the Library of Alexandria was an ancient wonder, but it only had like 11 scrolls. They had like the child craft <laughs> books and a world, a very old world book. In his travels, he also made friends with the other scholars and noblemen of the day and created sure. a kind of a, a, a network of, of other mag, magi. Mags? Mages? Yeah, magi. Magi. This is what, so the first, so you know there's a, probably the best used bookstore in Seattle today is called Magus Books. It's been next to UW campus for 30 or 40 years. Twice Sold Tales is going to be pretty mad at you. Sorry to the cats, but you smell. <laughs> uh, it's true, if you're a Capitol Hill person... Twice Old Tales or Ballard. But Magus in the U District has been there, I don't even know, 30, 40 years. I was talking to the owner the other day and I confessed to her that I used to say Magus. Yeah, so did I. Incorrectly thinking, you know, because you you know, you grew up hearing about the three magi. Right. So you think that one is a magus. But of course, G before you is never a soft G. It's a magus. I guess it's it changes the pronunciation of the G to pluralize it, which bothers me a little. Yeah, me too. But, but Magus books, it's not a large bookstore, but they do have because it's next to Amazing the campus, yeah. they kind of do have one of everything. You know, it's 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 where I would look for stuff first. I don't know. Uh, check out Megas. I, I want independent bookstores and used bookstores to survive. I know you do. Weird smelling used bookstores are my life's blood. Check out your local version of the university bookstore that has one of everything. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit ButcherBox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's ButcherBox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. I was just reading a news article today about a Washington Nationals pitcher who's kind of there. He's there, hip flannel, wearing indie rock listening pitcher. You, you... Probably know who I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. He writes me all the time. He uh, wants to know what the lyrics to Cinnamon are all about. His, <laughs> his wife is a funny internet woman and they're delightful. And uh, every t on every road trip this season, he is making a point of stopping by 
the local independent bookstore, oh. bu- buying something, boosting them. And he, he made- he, he, he buys a different George Will book on <laughs> baseball every time. It's mostly, it's mostly <laughs> epic fantasy. He's reading oh, all nice. these dragon books. And it occurred to me really like uh, future audiences are no doubt living in a time where Barnes and Noble has been out of business for a thousand years. But in our day, Barnes and Noble is perpetually going to going bankrupt. And when they finally do, huge swaths of America are not going to have their bookstore. They're going to have an amazing place to to start playing laser tag. No, it's going to be a regional. It's going to be a seasonal Halloween store. <laughs> but the other eleven months of the year, is I don't it, know. Is it true that every? I mean, I think of like a plucky Meg Ryan person in each one of these little towns has managed to keep the uh, bookstore slash like gift shoppy. It's true in Britain, and it's true any place there's a tourist trade for sure. Like right. Port, Port Angeles has a little bookstore. Sure. Seattle uh, has them a half a dozen. Port Townsend has a little bookstore, I'm sure. In Seattle, we're very lucky. But I think you get out into the... We actually have a bookstore that just sells books on magic. <laughs> we have a bookstore that's all poetry. We just lost our mystery bookstore, We I have think. a travel bookstore There's, here. Is the travel bookstore still there? I think. Last I checked, up on Capitol Hill. Oh, oh I'm thinking of the one in Wallingford. That one's gone. Yeah. But yeah, specialty bookstores. We still have a breath. magazine. We have more than one magazine shop. <laughs> Are you you talking about the newsstand in Pike Place? Yeah. Well, and Bulldog yeah, is still there. Yeah, Bulldog's still there. Uh, Welcome to our tour of Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> but in a lot of, you know, a lot of city centers that are not Seattle are, are real book deserts. Yeah. And even if you get down to the Burbs, it's, there's a Barnes and Noble at the mall and that's it. And there's going to be a lot of places that are, and a lot of books just get bought because there's a place to go for grandma to get you know, a graduation present or something. And how, once that's gone, are people just going to be like, oh yeah, I don't buy books anymore, I guess. Remember remember how we used to buy magazines and newspapers? Let me offer a cautionary tale. I have a close uh, family member, actually, who used to work as Paul Allen's Librarian, librarian who is who has guested on the show before in in the third person. That's right, and uh, and she's she's been referred to in this same context, which is that uh, when Paul Allen died, she realized uh, she and her colleagues realized that nobody that that uh, that digital media was not really inheritable or transferable because it's all essentially leased. You so, feel like one of the books at the end of Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Like she's the living memory. She's the only one that knows this stuff now. So don't get rid of your books as much as it's a popular fashion to think that everything is on the internet now and you don't need books, records, or... Um, you need books and you records. You need books and records, yeah. And if they are by Larry Niven or some other 70s sci-fi author, send them to my parents. Uh, buy all of the Long Winter's records on vinyl. Buy all of my books in multiple copies for gift occasions. Uh, John D., because he's traveled so much and knows all these big minds in every court in Europe, he's accused of spying very often. Sure. And in fact, it's widely thought today that he was, in fact, spying for the crowd. You know, that when he, when he did head over to, you know, the King of Prussia's court or whatever, that Elizabeth would say, What's, uh, what's, what's going on yeah, over what's there? What's the fashionable chocolate? And an interesting uh, take on, an interesting little filigree on John D being a spy is that he would send his letters back to Queen Elizabeth with his own little personal glyph, oh. which was a pair of eyes and a number, uh, t- you know, two circles representing a pair of eyes and a number seven. As the nose. <laughs> well, it's to the right of them, but it's, it's a lucky, it's a lucky number. It's a numerological sign. 007s? So he is literally sending spy dispatches home to the queen that say 007 on them. Uh, you know, 500 years before. But they weren't Ian written, Fleming. they weren't written in a, in any kind of cipher. She didn't have to, in, 
She didn't have to decode them, she although had, maybe secret words. She right? had a wax seal. Although I guess yeah. this is, if there was anybody into secret codes back then, it would have been a magus. I would have thought he'd been, uh, he would have been, I would have thought he would have been accused of. Uh, <laughs> Double subjective. <laughs> of uh, Freemasonry, in addition to some other suspicious crimes. Well, in addition to his dung beetles, yes. In, in fact, uh, in the 1550s, he makes the mistake of uh, preparing a horoscope for Elizabeth's predecessor, Queen Mary, and for Princess Elizabeth. Oh. And this gets into tricky era, area, and he's called, I don't even know what the objection is, if the, if maybe because one is the queen and one is a rival, or if it's just because the contents of the horoscope were suspicious in some way, but he's called in front of the star chamber. Aren't horoscopes a cult? Maybe it's a religious objection, yeah. But the, the thing is, this is a time, as we will see, when religion and this kind of spirituality, which today strikes us as a whole different, you know, there's New Age bookstores and there's Christian bookstores, and that's a very different America walking into those two places. Right. But at the time, there's some overlap, as we shall see. Um, so I'm not sure if the objection is puritanical in nature. But anyway, he's arrested for, for doing horoscopes, which honestly I wish would happen today to anybody who prepares newspaper horoscopes. Like if they had all, if they all gotten dragged in front of the star chamber, that would be fine with me. Well, if you think about it, his, his contemporary is Copernicus. He uh, was I mean, a believer in Copernican theory. He was a friend of Tycho Brahe, the great Danish astronomer. He was, um, all, all of his astronomical work kind of takes a Copernican heliocentric sun-centered model for granted. Right. Which could have gotten him in trouble. Um, for example, to Queen Elizabeth, he recommends uh, new astronomical advances like the Gregorian calendar and aligning the civil year with the liturgical year on January 1st. And both of these are shot down by the Tudors because they arise in Rome. Dun, dun, dun. They are not going to have filthy papist calendars on good English, uh, <laughs> <on good> English stationery. <laughs> Think about the heretics of this time, though. You've got Erasmus. You've got Machiavelli. I mean, they're all contemporaries, right? And it's very, you can see why there's all these conspiracies. Once Rosicrucianism arrives in the 17th century, all this Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, all gets backdated to include past geniuses as well. Of like, course. oh yeah, like Erasmus and these guys were all hanging out. John Dee was, you know, looking at his crystal ball and telling them, you know, like all occult tradition gets backdated to include stuff that's more ancient than whatever weird corrugated metal shantytown dweller actually came up with it. But so you... Gave us a little foreshadowing. We remember Machiavelli and Erasmus and Copernicus. Why not John Dee? Well, let me build up his resume a little before I tear this poor guy down. Okay. Uh, while he's traveling the continent, he makes friends with Mercator and Ortelius, the great map makers of the day. Right. And this ties in with his astronomical, you know, navigation was a purely astronomical text, a task back then. That's why astronomy. So you can read the stars and know your latitude. And so he takes all this knowledge back home, trains England's navigators. Uh, it's believed that he is the mind behind Drake's circumnavigation of the earth. Wow. And in fact, when Drake, uh, you know, visits the new world, um, John Dee has kind of created his own trading company and has, has claimed rights to anything Drake gets to that's above the 50th parallel. What, really? Yeah, but Drake, like his modern day... Successor started at the bottom. <laughs> he did not get north of Oregon. But if he had, you know. Drake, his modern day successor, is from above the 49th parallel. <laughs> That's true. He did not. St <laughs> he started at the bottom, but like the bottom of Canada. The bottom of Canada, right. Which is Degrassi. <laughs> but if Drake had gotten up to Alaska, like you could have been born in John D. Landia. 
So did John D. get that uh, patent from the Queen? It seems unlikely he could just throw that out there. Yes, as a courtier, you know he get, he you know he can get the Queen's imprimatur on about everything. I'm sure all these courtiers were t- you know she had a she had an inner circle of of buddies. Right, right, right. And it was you know being close to Queen Elizabeth was you know pretty close to absolute power back then. And most of the most of her courtiers were they got like. They got to say, I get the newest shoes from Bond Street. They weren't thinking <laughs> he gets to big say, picture. I get the Yukon <laughs> if, when it's discovered. <laughs> Although Alaska doesn't exist yet, I would like it. In 1577, he eventually wrote all his theories of navigation in a book called General and Rare Memorials Pertaining to the Perfect Art of Navigation, everything he'd learned from a career in exploration. And it really becomes a, a how-to manual for Britain's colonial advance. He writes about how in Arthurian times, there's evidence that King Arthur went to Ireland. He went to the islands of the sea. Oh. And therefore, you know, that Britain has a claim to the new Atlantis, which is the Americas. And he even goes further and says, as we all know, there's a Welsh sailor named Madoc. Are you familiar with the legend of Madoc? No. Who got to the Americas before Columbus, oh, and right. therefore the Spaniards can go suck it. Right. So Madoc is a pretty spurious thing, but he invents this claim that Britain should be able to have the New World because Madoc went to Atlantis. I do remember Madoc. Can you imagine? Do you really think a Welsh guy got to America before Vikings or or uh, Spanish explorers? He might have uh, not to dismir- uh, besmirch the Welsh name, but he might have like gotten drunk in a barrel and. <laughs> And believed he was in America? <laughs> no, and woke up on Long Island. I think he just washed ashore in Dublin. He's like, you know, he's in the Liffey River and he's like, I did it. Look, you. Going to get all these angry emails from the Welsh. And here's this, oh, they don't have computers. And here's the thing about his book. In this book where he talks about the Arthurian claim that England has the New World, he coins the phrase British Empire. Wow. We owe the next like 400 years of English history to the, to John Dee's far-thinking view of navigation and exploration. So this is, he's boosting this as a, uh, he's not doing this as a way to sell his book. He's, uh, he's a nationalist or he's a... Yes, uh, this is for queen and country, right. very much. And, but also, you know, he's into the theoretical sciences. He predicts telescopes, he predicts solar power. Uh, nobody was talking about the speed of light at the time, but he created this thought experiment. He realized that if you, sh- if you could somehow shoot a mirror into space and it was big enough, then the speed of light would mean you could look into that mirror and see the past. Whoa. Whoa. Whoa so bro. this is a guy talking about, you know, semi-Einsteinian implications of the speed of light at a time when nobody else is really, no other scientist is talking about this. I mean, this is, he's like Kepler is one of his contemporaries too. Mm-hmm. And his successors include people who read his books and people who read the books by people who read his books. So Isaac Newton and Robert Hooke and all the great British scientists of the actual Enlightenment are, uh, you know, John Dee is the foundation for all of that. And so your question is, why don't we remember this guy as the greatest scientist of his age? And the fact is there is a second act. Um, oh, dear. He, so his discoveries always and his work always straddled what we would think of today as actual science and the occult. Oh, wait. So he, he developed, a, uh, he's clearly not a flat earther. Uh, <laughs> and he don't, I don't think he thinks there's a, there's a UFOs living under the North Pole. He's not a phrenologist. He doesn't sound like an alchemist or um, what are some of the other uh, temptations? He gets in with a bad crowd. He's very into scrying. So because he's into optics, telescopes, light, the speed of light and so forth, 
there's not a clear distinction back then, just as there's no distinction between numerology and algebra. There's no real distinction between looking into a lens to uh, see the harbor and looking into a lens to see the future. Oh, so there is a clear distinction. We know well, now. To, uh, yes, but yeah. to him. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me make clear for the future links. You should not be uh, looking into a, a telescope to ask it where you should go on vacation. But in a way, I've never really thought about this, but looking into a telescope, you are looking into the past. Yes, you're looking into a bended piece of glass and you're looking at something you, your eye cannot normally see at a different size and scale than you would normally see it. If you know about the speed of light, it's not the same time you're looking no, at. That's true. If you're looking at the stars, you're looking at things that are millions of years old. Right, but Although through a telescope, known it. you're listening, or you're looking at something that's micro, microseconds old. So it was not that different for him. You know, he actually would look in a crystal ball and he started going to psychics. You know, he, he had no psychic ability. He, when he looked in a crystal ball, he saw nothing. And yet he was surrounded by people who would look into a crystal ball and tell him exactly what he needed to know. Right. And he's like, oh, damn it. I, oh, I guess I just don't have the gift. Those I'm, Merlins. I'm going to have to keep going to these awesome people. <laughs> Apparently it never occurs to him that they may all be charlatans. And in 1581, he gets uh, wrapped up with a younger man who kind of gloms onto him and his power and his influence and his wealth. Happens all the time. Named Edward Kelly. A large alcoholic man in his thirties, who has had his earlobes, he's pr he has his earlobes cut off. This is not your typical younger man sidling up to this an not, older. This is not what you were picturing at all. I'm sorry. No. I don't know what kind of animal you use for this guy. It's, I had a different a, picture in mind. <laughs> no, this is kind of a loser who sees money. Right. And he, uh, his, he's missing his earlobes because that's how you visibly marked a coin counterfeiter back then. Sure. This was a guy who had used his, his scientific abilities to start shaving gold off the corners of coins and melting it down, which was, you know, that's a profitable way to use your metallurgical knowledge back then, I and guess. And he got caught and lost his earlobes as a result. Lost his earlobes. And so Dee's wife and kids just hate this guy. Why are you bringing... Um, Kelly around. Kelly around. He's always drunk. Um, but... He, to D, Kelly is irresistible because he sees things. And in particular, angels speak to him. Really? This was a popular pseudoscience then because it's it's biblical. We know there's archangels. Right. Uh, why they do come down and intervene. They do have the mysteries of the universe. Why shouldn't they be telling them to us when we look in our crystals? Why wouldn't they use coin counterfeiters <laughs> and drunks as their <laughs> earthly messengers? So Kelly and D spend 10 years in a series of... Uh, of sessions speaking to what they, the, the archangels who reveal to them the true nature of the cosmos. And they take care, Dee's taking careful notes oh, on this because Ramtha, because now he's figured this out. It is, it's exactly Ramtha, right? Except it's, it's Uriel and Michael and Gabriel. And, uh, and they're, they're telling them when the end of the world is coming, uh, in the 1580s, apparently they're telling them, uh, the true language that Adam and <laughs> spoiler alert for uh, future links. But if the worst comes soon, this, <laughs> this very seance could be our final one. So they teach them to speak this Adam and Eve language, which they call Enochian. Oh, Enochian. After Enoch, the Genesis patriarch. Right. Uh, who, whose city was sent to heaven. And so they found for 10 years, the science of Enochian magic and write hundreds of thousands of words probably about all these, you know, can you imagine John D like thinking to him, this is cold fusion. He's discovered the next thing in science. He's speaking to archangels and now he knows how to do Enochian magic. Can you imagine his good luck? <laughs> and it's all for queen and country. This is all in the service of, you know, found using this wisdom to found a new world order that will unite the globe under 
Elizabeth, who was this kind of quasi-mystical figure for people, you know, a, a virgin queen who would rule the seven seas. And this is really the roots of every modern occult movement that would come after. To Dee and Kelly, we owe Rosicrucianism and whatever Francis Bacon was up to, the occult revivals of the 19th century, you know, the theosophists and stuff. Right. And then our moderns, you know, Aleister Crowley was influenced by them and Anton LaVey is influenced by Crowley. You know, it, it's a straight line back to John Dee and this uh, burping charlatan guy. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. And they were not getting easy tasks. I guess the angels told Kelly to tell Dee that they needed to go to the Holy Roman uh, Empire, the court of the Holy Roman Empire, and tell Emperor Rudolph II that he had been possessed by demons. And even though this seemed like a death sentence, they did so. They went to Prussia and told Rudolf II that he was in the service of Satan. Ye gods, like that's a, not something someone wants to hear. Yes, that is, if he wrote a manual on, on uh, diplomacy to go with his navigation one, I would leave that out. I would never say it to someone who had the power of beheading. You would just say it to whom? I might say it to somebody on the bus. <laughs> I might say it in an email that I wrote at two o'clock in the morning to someone that I'm in business with. I might say it in a tweet about, you know, uh, Kellyanne Conway, but nobody who can actually behead me. Wait, I guess I should stay away from the White House. Luckily, Rudolph laughs it off, but the papal nuncio takes notice. And, oh, okay. and now the Vatican is very worried about. Sure, because these, you're, you're getting into their territory here. And what always happens when you come up with a new belief system in 1587, Kelly tells him, hey, I've got bad news, but Madimi, this little girl, that's this little angel girl who's been appearing to us, uh, is now a beautiful woman, and she has disrobed and told me that we, you and I need to share all things in common. And I think, he's, I think she's talking about our wives. Oh. So suddenly it's a sex thing. Uh-oh. The Anakian angels want um, Kelly and Dee to start sleeping around. Okay. Oh, so this is a, this is a, like a new, um, like it's an early kind of, oh, you can have as many wives as you can handle it's, it's, deal? It's the Oneida cult. <laughs> it's any polygamist cult. Obviously, Dee's wife is not into this. She hates this guy. Dee's wife. <laughs> uh, but he wants the D, the uh-huh. Mrs. D, that is. John D. protests and says, surely no. And uh, the archangel Uriel appears to put to back him up and say, Nope, this is the deal. So they draw up a contract, and sure enough, they start wife-swapping. Um, but this is the beginning of the end. Shortly thereafter, um, you know, the whore of Babylon has been appearing to them and telling them when the, the, the end times are coming. 
And this, in the late 1580s, fails to materialize. This is all through Kelly. Dean never once uh, has any kind of vision. He's, he, con- he considers himself confined to the material sciences. Well, we don't know. In all the records of the time, mm-hmm. Dee and Kelly are writing down this amazing stuff that's happening to them. From our modern-day perspective, we assume that none of this happens, and therefore they're charlatans. What's really happening? Like, the, the fact that Kelly is like, oh, dude, also we have to swap wives. It's the thing that makes many people assume this calls that the Kelly fi- is the charlatan. And- the final attention of the Pope, right? <laughs> well, it's actually, uh, I think it sours John Dee himself on the whole relationship. Oh, he stops buying it. He stops buying it. The, the apocalypse fails to materialize. Mrs. D is not into the new arrangement. Right. He he looked more carefully and noticed that he was missing his earlobes. <laughs> so your story about your earlobes and Kelly, uh, and they part ways, Kelly runs off to become a big time alchemist in the court of Rudolph, like in the same, oh. in the same Holy Roman court that he had accused of demon worship. He shows up with his carpet bag and says, good news. Hey. I can make gold. <laughs> Hook me up. And they're like, yes, sir. Tell us what you give us your list. And within a few I think very quickly it becomes clear that he can't make gold. Did he behead him this time? He dies in terrible fashion. There's two accounts of his death. In one, he poisons himself. Mm. Uh, in the other, he tries to escape and falls out a window to his death. Mm. It's a, it's a uh, defenestration. Uh, uh, thank goodness. It's a John D. fenestration. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what happens to Edward Kelly. John D. returns home to his estate. Uh, and this is around the same time Elizabeth dies. And as you may recall, the Tudors are replaced by the Strict Scottish stewards. Yes. And they are not having it. No, nay. There is nay a penny <laughs> for John D. Uh, they they do not believe there should be a magus in the court. Well, sure. They're they're puritanical, right? They want all of that uh, superstition out. Exactly. It all it all smacks of papism to them. Um they you know, they're very happy to have uh, but you they know, like the math. I mean, the, Scot- the Scots aren't against math. <laughs> yeah, but they're only in the math so they can tip less. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little different. <laughs> is it still okay to make jokes like that about the Scots? I think it is. There's I a mean, list of people you can't make that joke about, we but went, I would say the Scots are okay. We went after the Welsh, so, I mean, it, they have it coming. We are both, uh, you're mostly Welsh, but I'm part Scottish as well, so I feel like that's, a, I can say it. <laughs> <laughs> I can say the S word. <laughs> I have a lot of friends that are Scottish. <laughs> Some of my best friends are crappy tippers in kilts. So uh, so this is a case of him veering into the occult and it discrediting all his work as a scientist? That's pretty much what happens because as his reputation is revived, well, so he heads home, his estate has been ransacked. Uh, oh dear. Because there's no income anymore now that Stuarts are on the throne. James I hates them all. His wife and five kids have died of the plague. It's, good. it's like a Bergman movie. <laughs> good? <laughs> no, I'm like, <laughs> good heavens. Oh. But I couldn't even get the heavens out. <laughs> good. I was so <laughs> sick of that lady who didn't want to sleep with the earlobe guy. <laughs> uh, I was just waiting for the plague to make its dramatic entrance. Yes, all, that, that's, that's always my favorite character. That's usually the third act of these, of these 16th century stories. Uh, so for the rest of his life, you know, his one surviving daughter is caring for her, you know, dotard of a white bearded father. He's selling off his books to survive. He dies in poverty and shame. And to the degree that people remember him, it's flaky Rosicrucians and theosophists being like, yeah, John D was the guy that, that spoke Enochian. Right. But, and they can point to his actual discoveries as proof that, or as validation of his kooky stuff, right? That's what happens with the anti-vaxxers too. They, or they, or the, I mean, there's always like Kirk Cameron's dad 
was some kind of famous scholar that had some scholarly justification for like discrimination against homosexuals. Oh, is that right? Yeah, there's always... It's true. You can always find the the family, American family, uh, Institute of American Families in uh, Aurora, Colorado. The American Family Institute of of American American Families. Yeah, the the AFIAF, AFIAF always has these studies showing that... uh, you know, every time a gay guy, a gay couple adopts, there's a hurricane. Yeah, and there's there's always an eminent geologist on the board <laughs> or something. <laughs> who, do, who does not believe in fossils. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, and so maybe it's a case like that. I almost think it's more like because his name became synonymous with scrying and uh, Some of the dumbest magic, pseudosciences. Yeah, that it, we forget that he really was just the smartest guy and really influential that, you know, nobody knew arithmetic symbols in English before, you know, he, he put the plus sign and the time sign in his, in his translation of Euclid, you know, like this guy's a foundational mind for everything from kindergarten up. And sadly, uh, it was besmirched by earlobe guy. When you, when you, when you think about the greatest sort of polymathic scientist of the age, we always say Erasmus, is the is sort of the greatest? He's your uh, guy. What do well, people say, Leonardo? Or well, are, you want to go earlier? Leonardo, Leonardo made his bones uh, in the 15th century, I think. I oh, think. I see. You're you're going to go humanist, the post Renaissance humanist. Yeah, okay. right. And because all of your all of your Copernici uh, <laughs> are all, you know, they're they're more specialized, right? They're not this. They're not the 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 one with the enormous library like Erasmus, and the attention of the court. You know, they were also very fashionable men of science and, and education yeah. at the time. And they weren't just, they weren't just hauled up in front of the nuncio, but they, they swanned around. But I wonder, did, who took credit for John Dee's discoveries? Did they just get integrated into what the common understanding and no one was required to footnote them? Yeah, I think what happened was, you know, John Dee's writings were read by, you know, the greatest. Who just sort of. The greatest scientists of the next 20 or 30 years who were. They didn't star their sources. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then Newton and Hook read that guy, read Wilkins or whoever. And they're like, you know, this is the stuff. Right. And they don't really realize, you know, and also if, you know, this guy probably wrote hundreds of pages of claptrap. (laughs) <laughs> but if one of them says, hey, if you had a big mirror in space, you could, uh, you know, you could see the Garden of Eden. You know, today we're like, hey, there's actually something to that. Right. But that, you know, he, that's, you know, you throw enough, you, you, you throw put, enough darts at a wall. Put and, that around the angel, uh, uh, the, the, the Delphic oral uh, oracles that are, that are doing a song and dance for Yeah, you. you just have to like go through with a search and replace and take out every sentence that contains <laughs> the word Uriel. But I wish we could speak Enochian. Don't you wish we could speak the original language? I feel like I dated a girl that spoke Enochian, but only when she was super mad. That you always hear stories about parents who uh, like like raise their kids in oh, silence right. in hopes that they will develop whatever our natural human language is. Yeah, that seems like such a generous thing to do to your kids. You know, <laughs> like like keep keep them in the dark and like keep raise them up like mushrooms. You Just, know. Punish your millennial kids the the good way. Name them Khaleesi or something. <laughs> so are there are there more contemporary examples of of scientists that contributed real 
insight into the, the physical world who were later discredited because of their participation in seances or their anti-vaxxer position? It's not seances, but scientists do get canceled for, you know, just uh, thinking that the same coolly dispassionate eye they brought to their subject, they also need to turn to the social sciences. Well, it was true of, of the cold fusion cats, right? They, they were pretty, or at least, uh, at least one of them was pretty eminent in his field before before really sticking to his guns about cold fusion. But you're saying that there I, are people that I'm thinking that are, of someone like William Shockley who invents the transistor and then he's like, he wins the Nobel Prize because he invented the transistor. Like he invents the modern era, basically. We don't have semiconductors without him. And then he's like, well, I've got your ear, eugenics. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Well, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't Crick, who discovered DNA, end up being a... Uh, I think it's Watson. Oh, it's Watson. Let's, let's leave Crick out of oh, it. Oh, sorry. Crick is, Crick's our man. Crick's but... the good American one. <laughs> Watson is the dodgy British one who later says, well, I have your... Since I've invented DNA, I think you might want to hear which races have lower IQs. Yeah, that, he, he really, he stuck to his guns on that, right? The bell curve, uh, the theory of... of yeah intelligence distrib- distribution. And what happens is the discoveries don't go away. We still have transistors and DNA, but I guess nobody wants to drink with these guys at conferences. Right, their they're, uh, they're oil painting is taken down from the Royal, uh, Royal Society, although I, we would never see into that room anyway. I hate to say this, but it's kind of an argument against Renaissance men and women because these guys were told, you know, how smart they were. Right. And then they were like, but let me tell you about the differences between the races. <laughs> and you're like, like well, maybe nobody should have told this guy he was special. Well, you and I have almost no claim to fame other than like being sort of pretenders to the Renaissance man throne. What's our, what's, what's your most dangerous theory? <laughs> oh, I guess we've never been, luckily we've never been acclaimed oh, for being right. a genius. If you're a genius in one theory, then you're like, I can do it all. Well, wait a minute. You're like, uh, you're Jimmy Corrigan, the, America's smartest boy. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's true, but I guess nobody ever comes up to you and says, Ken, you've been on Jeopardy for a long time. <laughs> Who should we sterilize? <laughs> and that concludes John D. Entry 325.DA0202. Certificate number 44269 in the omnibus. Futurelings... In the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era and you are looking for claptrap theories of angels talking to you about the bell curve. We do like looking into crystals today and and seeing people far away, but it's Instagram photos on our rectangular pocket crystals. Well, or just think of how little is required for someone who you might know as a friend or somebody that you you used to like in college who now believes... (laughs) that the Hardy Boy, Nancy Drew mysteries all contain the secrets to American foreign power. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's so all many t- bad theories. It, all it took was one election to get Mindy off Facebook because my wife realized that, you know, she didn't want to hear uh, any of her extended family's uh, political memes anymore. Every once in a while, you know, I have a lot of Facebook friends because I just accepted every friend request for many years. But every once in a while, one of my high school friends will pop up in my timeline. I don't go there very often, just to look, just to talk to the futurelings and some people over in Gary's van. I don't actually talk to them. I just, I just watch. <laughs> uh, but every once in a while, some high school friend will make some comment to the effect that Hillary's emails and there will be this huge thread of all the people I went to high school with that are like, yeah, you should burn her at the stake. 
And I, I'm like, oh no. Is it like QAnon stuff? We think JFK Jr. is still alive. There's quite a, there's there's QAnon, but there's also just that, you know, there's yeah, the America kind of first general Benghazi stuff. Yeah, and uh, and just, a, just an overwhelming feeling that there are forces at work that they know all about that are part of a global conspiracy run by, a for pizza, instance. A pizza parlor in Arlington? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, George Soros makes appearances and, uh, you know, and so forth. And People so forth. of a certain possibly ethnic religious background. Some, like a, like, let's say a people that didn't always have a homeland <laughs> that wandered the earth. So it's, it's shocking to me that how many Facebooks there are. And I, I'll go on there and have kind of like limited myself. But oh, the other thing is a lot of friends around here that go on long, long, long discursions on their medical issues. Is it for donations? I think it's, the, they want you to donate your sympathy to them. Um, you know, they're just like, they talk about their, their uh, you know, their doctor's visits for a long time. You are ready to be an old person. Who, me? Oh, yeah, all your, all your friends are telling you about their doctor's <laughs> visits. Like, welcome to your 80s, you know? I went to my doctor the other day. You know, I turned 50, and I'm, you're supposed to go to the doctor. So I went, and I was talking to her about my prostate, which is what I'm supposed to talk to the doctor about. Not while she's in there, though. You're not? What, in my prostate? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's, that, when, that's, it, that's when it comes that's up, when I it guess. That's when it comes up. <laughs> Literally. And I was recalling to her uh, the many, many hours I sat with my father as he aged, talking to his friends over Chinese food about their prostate. <laughs> and they all had stuff to say about it. And I remember just rolling my eyes like, you guys, I don't even know what a prostate is. And they were like, one day you'll know. One day, mark our words. And now I'm like, ugh. This is good that nobody can complain to us about the George Soros joke you made now that you've talked about old men sitting around eating Chinese food with you. You are in with the tribe now. Yeah, it was always on Christmas, too. <laughs> uh, anyway, go to at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick to see all of our witticisms, all of our polymathery and, uh, and like crackpot theories of of human world, human All, society. We know the real Enochian secrets and we're giving them away I'll one at a what. time on social media. Ken speaks Enochian if Enochian is a language of all puns. Prison colon and Sinai Chusel is the Enochian for future link. Also email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Go to the aforementioned Future Link's Facebook page and send us all of the, let's say you are listening to this program in England and your great, 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 great grandfather bequeathed to you some scientific instruments from the 16th century. Do you really think we have listeners sitting around with 16th century astrolabes? I do. I think that there is a listener right now who's sitting. You're like a televangelist now. <laughs> I think there's someone right now out there who needs to send me a hundred dollars. There, there is a futureling in a uh, in a, a silk smoking jacket wearing a little fez, who's who's <laughs> toying with, toying with some compass that is uh, that is long dead ancestor built. Who's like, I'm going to send this to my my friends at Omnibus. That would be delightful. I can't wait. Anyway, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Listeners, as you peer at us into your crystal balls in the distant past, we are the mirror shooting into space. You see prehistory in us because we, unlike you, have no idea how long this human civilization will survive. 
We're like the piece of glass at the end of uh, uh, in Superman 2. John and I are trapped inside a piece of glass flying through space that you can look at. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear uh, may never come, that our Phantom Zone prison will not shatter. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final work. But we hope, our most fervent hope, is that Providence will allow us to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.